Welcome to the Memories of a Moonbird podcast, exploring life one story at a time. Hello, friends. I'm Daniel Sherl. Today on the show, he's one of the most successful and multiple award-winning authors alive today. He worked with Christopher Tolkien on The Silmarillion, has published 14 novels and a book of poetry, and his combined works have been translated into 30 languages worldwide. Wow. He was also named to the Order of Canada, the country's highest civilian honor. He has a true love of literature and, like a good Canadian, hockey. Here today to talk about a great many things, as well as his newest novel, All the Seas of the World. It's an absolute honor to welcome one of my favorite authors, Mr. Guy Gavriel Kay. Guy, welcome to the show. Daniel, thank you. It's good to be here. It's wonderful to have you here. We're going to jump right in with where you were born and raised. I know you told me offline that you grew up in the Canadian prairie. I was wondering what it was like growing up in that part of the world. I'll, I'll, I'll come at this in a, in a bookish way, which is a warning that I'm likely to do that a few times during the conversation. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, in my first book, The Piano by Tapestry, uh, there is a, it's very mythic. It's very, it's very much built around myths and legends from different cultures. And at one point, there is uh, a section of the book that takes place during a very Norse eternal winter, simple winter. It's, it's like winter never ends. And I remember people asking me then, what made you think of doing this? And I said, you know where I'm going. That is not a fantasy. That is the most realistic reality-driven part of anything I've ever written. It's the eternal winter growing up in Winnipeg on the prairies. Hmm. Now, uh, in, in the field of our tapestry, you know, the, the students are from the University of Toronto. And was that inspired by you living in Toronto? The actual inspiration for the opening scene of the field of our tapestry was uh, a culture conference that I attended at the University of Toronto. I skipped a week of law school. I felt like I was jailbreaking myself and spent a week attending uh, panels and lectures and readings at the Convocation Hall, which is really quite beautiful building on the campus. And it was years later when I started to think about the piano by tapestry and the summer tree, the first book, but the memories of a Celtic conference in that building came back, and that's the opening scene of the Piano Vitale. Yeah. yeah, it's it's to this day, I personally believe, is one of the greatest fantasy trilogies that's ever been written, but that's my personal take, and, you know, so kudos to I'm not going to argue with you, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> well, love Chris. Actually, well, I am. I am. It's remarkable how... It's remarkable and predictable how varied and wide-ranging people's responses to any kind of art will be. Mm. For every person who says, this is the best book I ever read, there will be somebody who said, I was asleep by chapter five. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things about being a musician, a writer, a painter, an actor, uh, is that you have to learn to take that on board to process the extraordinary variety of responses that people have to art. So thank mm -hmm. you. I didn't want to be flippant. I'm great. <laughs> My pleasure. Uh, I'm curious, what were you like as a child, as a little boy, and did you want to write as a young man? I read voraciously. I was interested in writing, not so much as a child, but by the time I got to the end of my high school years, for sure, mostly mm. poetry at that point. But I grew up on the prairies, as we've discussed, in a family where my father, especially, was older than my mother, had been a child through the Great Depression. And the children of people who grew up in the Depression, I think, had infused into them that awareness that you needed to be practical, mm -hmm. that things could happen out of nowhere. Meteorites could fall. Russia could invade you. I was just going to say. In Ukraine, <laughs> we're in the same space. That awareness of the need to be pragmatic to a degree 
was always in me. Uh, my parents were fabulously, wondrously supportive of mm. what emerged as a desire to write. So you have two sons, I know, and I'm curious, did you pass your love of writing on to them? The older son is uh, driven to create. But I think as it's not uncommon in, in generational transitions, he is a musician, he's in a band, he's a painter, he was a filmmaker, uh, did his degree in film production. Uh, so his creative drives have fallen into those directions. He writes his songs, he scripted his films, but he's not a sit down and write a book person. The younger son is just finishing, in fact, day after tomorrow, finishes his law degree. So he picked up, he picked up. Where dad the, left off. Yeah, that side, the more analytic, uh, academically focused. Uh, he's also a bartender, so we got that from me too. I'm very proud of that. He worked in <laughs> law school as a bartender. Uh, so they both, in the way of these things, uh, I think have elements of their father and dramatic, exciting elements that are completely their own that they bring to me mm. as, as parts of the world, interests in the world that I would never have had if, it wasn't for, if it wasn't for the children who yeah. are now adults. Yeah. Is there something about you growing up in Canada that you feel is very, because you've traveled quite a bit in your life, but is there something about you that you think is still distinctly Canadian? If, if being Canadian gave me a really important thing, it is the fact that we are not a dominant culture in the world. The country of Canada is respected, it, I love it. I'm deeply aware of its flaws, but we are not powerful in any formal sense of that word. And what that does is it throws you outward. It causes you to look at the wider world rather than close in in a more mm. insular way, because in some countries, all you need is your own country. Yeah. And Canada, Canadians are known as travelers. When I did my first backpacking trip to Europe at 18, uh, there were so many Canadians, 19, 20, 22, 24-year-olds, doing exactly the same thing, living on $5 a day to see the world cheaply because Canada threw you out into that wider world viewpoint. And I think I do have that. I'm well, that's really wonderful, too. And it's something that as an American, uh, I just feel like we I don't think that we travel enough. I think that several of us do. Some of us who are fortunate enough to travel. But as Americans in general, I think we are one of the, the least traveled citizens. You talk to Europeans and Canadians stuff, and they all take holiday. First of all, they get longer holidays in Europe. I don't know about Canada, but, you know, America, we get two weeks. You know? I think you're right. I think the Passport holding percentage of Americans is, is the lowest in the developed world. Mm -hmm. I should also add that when I was traveling in my, in my backpacking days, the people we really admired were the Australians and New Zealanders because they would be traveling for a year or a year and a half. It was so far to go to get to, say, Europe, or if they were going to South America, they were going so far that they organized their lives and their finances to be on the road for a really long time. Yeah, that's a wonderful thing. I, I dream of actually taking a year and just going to live in some country like that. We did Australia and New Zealand for our 10-year anniversary, actually, and it was we took three weeks. And that's the minimum I would say to somebody if they're going to travel, you know, because you really finally get a set. I, I like to immerse myself in the culture, get to know the people, find out where the local good restaurants are, that kind of thing. So I think I have I have a verbal distinction, which maybe it is syncretic, but I distinguish between tourists and travelers. And the main line of that distinction is what you just said, Daniel, which is time. If you go to uh, Tuscany or 
uh, New Zealand and spend three, four, five months if your life allows you to do that. You are functioning there in a different way mm-hmm. than someone who's there for a week or two. And that's tourist versus traveler, you're saying? Yep. That's how I use the, the words. Guy, I'm going to steal that from you. That's great. <laughs> I'm going to ask you a few questions about your career, and I have two two specific ones. Um, I know we mentioned in the intro that your books have been translated into over 30 languages. Was there a particular language that really surprised you that the books were translated? That is still a surprise, Daniel. It's still one of my favorite parts of being a writer uh, after all these years, decades now, is the pleasure I get from a well done, well-packaged translation into a language that may not be uh, a major language, a major culture in terms of sales of books, Hmm. but the pleasure that people in that country are reading the books, responding to them, because of course that's part of social media, you you actually get a response back from people in uh, Korea or uh, Croatia and that's that's still exciting for me. Do you have to change the artwork for every country it's translated to? Every country picks its own art, and I will not go down the rabbit hole of telling you the disasters that have happened. <laughs> uh, by now, Daniel, the standard contract always stipulates for me that we have cover consultation. Mm, good. The first it- cover of the summer tree in Poland. When my agent phoned me, true story, my agent phoned me and said, we've received, this was early, I was just beginning, we've received uh, a box of the Polish summer tree. I said, great. She said, I'm going to send them over, but I want to warn you to sit down before you open the box. (laughs) And I said, oh, she said, just be sitting down before you open the box. And Daniel that edition had the most naked woman ever on the cover of a book, <laughs> of a commercial published book. Well, what character was that supposed to be? I have no idea what they were doing. Uh, she's very beautiful. She's a, <laughs> she's a silhouetted redhead. Uh, she's striking, but it has nothing to do with what the book is about. The second printing had a different cover and the coverage for The Wandering Fire and The Darkest Road, the other two books in the trilogy, Mm -hmm. were perfectly fine. But that warning, sit down before you open the box, remained in my head. That's hilarious. I actually, so uh, right here, I want to show you, I'll show the audience. Uh, This is my original copy of Tagana. And <clears throat> this is actually the version that I bought. Here, here you are in your sexy beard. Uh, You're showing me looking young. That's unfair. <laughs> <laughs> this is the one that I bought. And I was actually in high school when I read this. And I just want to tell you a quick funny story about it. So uh, Tagana is probably might be my favorite book you've written. Um, just for me personally, for many things I identify with. But I have to tell you this story. I'm sitting in class and I was so loving the book that I actually had it hidden behind my, like, whatever it was, science or whatever class I was in. There was another class and I had I had Tagana behind my other textbook so that the professor wouldn't know I wasn't paying attention to him and I was actually reading your book. You're but I was at- the book. Yeah, yeah. But I'm at the end of the story, and this is going to be a big spoiler for those who haven't read the book, so if you don't want to know, you know, zoom ahead on the recording. But I get to the end, and I believe it was, uh, if memory serves, it was Dianora was the was the main... At the end, who, I guess. Yeah, Dianora, she kills Just herself, right? Guy. Okay, so <clears throat> I had hoped the whole book that she would get back together, you know, or find her brother or whatever. And then at the end, when she just walks into the ocean and kills herself, I was so upset in class that I go, no, like out loud <laughs> and interrupted the whole class. And my teacher's like, are you okay, Mr. Sherl? <laughs> you know what, Daniel? Uh, one of my jokes has been, that on my tombstone, they're going to put, he made people cry. 
shut up. And I say that, I say that as a joke, but there is for me a really important underpinning, something I'm proud of and happy about in my relationship with readers. I've spent my writing life trying to create characters and place them in situations and write the stories as well as I can in order to have those people stay with you, Hmm. have them matter to the reader while they're reading and linger afterwards. It's my most rewarding interaction with readers is when they say something on the lines of what you just said, when you yelled out in a classroom. In your opinion, as a writer, why is literature important to the human race? You want a 30-second soundbite on that one, Daniel? I used to like (laughs) Sure. (laughs) I think literature, I'm going to take it a bit wider because I always try to do this. It's literature and art and music and architecture and dance. All forms of art are important for me in good part because of what we've been talking a bit about, which is that uh, my books can be read by people in 30 languages. They can be responded to. They can engage people in vastly different cultures. And for me, that speaks to what we share in a time, in a climate, indeed, you might say all times and all climates, when forces that divide us, that disrupt, that bring us into conflict, are so much foregrounded. Literature and art can speak to what we have in common. You've mentioned Tigana. I would tell you that when I tour for the books uh, all over the world, when I'm on tour in different countries, Two out of three events, appearances, engagements, someone will stand up and say, when you wrote Tigana, were you writing about us? Interesting. And my answer is that's why I wrote Tigana in a fantasy setting. Because the idea of fantasy setting, instead of specifically, say, South Korea during the Japanese occupation, or Wales when the English were making speaking Welsh illegal in schoolyards. Or Putin trying to erase Ukraine right now. Absolutely. Uh, All places that have felt their history, their culture, their identity, which is Ukraine again right now, all places that have felt and experienced a larger oppressor trying to erase their culture. Here in Canada, the Indigenous peoples have a generational trauma built around attempts to a terrible degree successful for a long time to erase their identity and culture. So when someone gets up, in Croatia, to ask me, were you writing about us? Or when my publisher in Korea asks if I would write an introduction to their edition of Tigana that explores how the themes of the book relate to what was done to the Korean language when it was occupied. This is possibly the most rewarding thing I can feel as a writer. And I feel it, if I could put it this way, both personally and as what we're talking about, an aspirational uh, element of the creative interaction in general, because it's Mm. not a monologue, Daniel. It's not one person throwing something at you and other readers. It's a dialogue. That is just fascinating. I, I, what a wonderful thing to experience. I think you're you're very fortunate as a human being to 
the number of people that get to experience that level is are far fewer than than I would love to see in the world. But that's what what an honor. That's incredible. Uh, you as a writer, I'm just curious, and I know this is one of those cheesy questions that you get asked all the time. So forgive that part. But what is your process when you write and when you decide to create a new novel? Do you have a particular manner in which steps you follow, etc.? In the writing of a book, the process. Yeah. I'm, I'm a terribly unsatisfactory interview on this because I don't have a template. Okay. Maybe I'm satisfactory in a different way because maybe I can liberate would-be writers by saying you don't need one. You don't need a formula. You don't need a pattern whereby your books emerge. Do you, do you, uh, you know, some authors say, oh, I always write the end of the book first because I just, or I always write the intro first. Do you have anything like that? Or is it different every time for you? I don't outline. And that's personal to my method because, but I want to stress this. I have dear friends who can't write word one until they've outlined through to the end of the book that works for them. That's the point I'm making. I don't outline because I like, if you will, the feeling of panic and adrenaline that comes when I sit down in the morning and I am convinced I will never again write a coherent paragraph or come up with a clever <laughs> plot idea. It's done. I'm history. It's over. I can Wait, finally so you, go back you to now still, you, have, <laughs> you, after 14 books, you still sometimes feel like, oh, I, I might never write another great story again? Yes, still. Still, and that's fascinating. Almost every morning, when I'm when I'm in the middle of a book, almost every morning there is that flicker of panic. Now, I don't want to be I don't want to be disingenuous. I know by now, in my later sixties, fourteen books and fifteen now because there's a fifteenth coming out in a month. I know by now that I can write capable prose. I'm not going to write semicolons and seafood recipes. uh, (laughs) I promise. But what I don't know, and this is, maybe this is reassuring for younger writers. This is an everyday thing. I don't know if I can close the gap between what's in here and what ends up on the screen or on the page as much as I wanted to. I think that's very helpful. It's it's a process for me. I use this metaphor. This is the way I frame it, of that closing the gap. Produce the space between what's in your head and what someone eventually gets to read. Well, do you believe that art is ever really finished? I mean, you, you could probably pick up Tagana right now and, and rewrite some pages, right? I do believe that, but there's a corollary or an opus to that, which is, that there is a point of diminishing returns <laughs> yeah. and people don't let it go. So I do believe that you can rewrite past a point of actual improvement. And sometimes I've known this to happen. Sometimes the rewrites reduce the quality. I know you said you don't outline, but when you have something like, you know, the Fiona Var tapestry, which is three books and all these characters, do you at least map out who all your characters are and where they're from and the different continents? Or you keep all that in your head? Yes, until the very end. And this is such an anecdotal about that book. But towards the very end, when I'm bringing so many characters together to one place in The Darkest Road in the third book, and so many people are descending from various directions to arrive at basically the same time in one place, I realized that I needed to draw up a chart where everyone was and how far away they were so that I could time things to make it plausible that they get there at the same time. That's the only time I've done that. That is so impressive. You can, you can keep all these people straight in your head. That's that's amazing. I, I can't do that. I have to, when I write, I have to have a, a list of all the characters, where they're from, you know, and I, I make a little timeline so I know ahead of time where they're, you know. But that's what we're talking about, Daniel. That That's what I'm saying. That's incredible. Your method will not be mine. If I tell someone, if somebody asks me, how do you do this? I'll always say, oh, this is anecdotal, not prescriptive. Well, what's something about your career that when you look back that most people don't know uh, that you you think it'd be cool if they did? I'll come at it this way. Uh, 
I'm angling into your question. No problem. The thing I'm proudest of, I think, over 38 years now, God help me, <laughs> summer tree came out. The thing I'm proudest of is that if you get a large number of readers of my work in a room together, ideally a bar, let everyone have a drink, <laughs> you get them together in the room and ask different people their favorite book. The thing I'm proudest of is that the odds are decent that just about every book will be named by someone. That's cool. And that's really cool because that reflects the aspirational thing about trying to reduce the gap to get as close as I can with each book to what I wanted to say. But that feeling that there are people out there for whom just about every book is one of their favorite books read or their favorite of my books. That's, that's, really, that's really rewarding to me. Yeah. Is there something that you still, you know, 38 years doing this, 15th book about to come out, is there something that you still feel driven to achieve as a writer? Yeah. yeah. What's that? The, I'm repeating myself now, but it's that idea that I've stressed of finding a theme, an idea, concepts, characters, and doing everything I can to make them as vivid as I can for the reader. But also, and this is where we get into the, the, the get into the graininess of, of writing for me. I don't like sledgehammers and mallets. I don't I like works of art or artists who bang you on the head with mm. what they're trying to say or indeed succeeding in saying. Rather than the mallet on the head, I prefer the stiletto into the whips, where you don't even know sometimes you've been stabbed between the ribs <laughs> by the long, thin knife until it's in there and you're feeling it. Mm, that's uh, cool. That is an important element of what I want to achieve with each book. I want you staying up till two in the morning, turning pages, or in the mm -hmm. classroom hiding it from the teacher, whatever it might be. <laughs> uh, I want that. But I also want urgently and still, to come back to the way you phrased the question, I still feel that I want the books to stick around for you. I want the books to be in some way, even a small way, in your life for a period of time after you finish so that something happens in the world and somebody will say, all right, well, I'm seeing Tigana coming up all the time in the last three weeks with reference mm -hmm. to Ukraine. The number of people who are referencing that book with respect to the attempt to erase a culture. Well, and I've actually purchased that book for at least 10 or 15 people in my life to say, you have to read this book. If you read no other fantasy book or whatever, read this book. It's very relevant to the world and it keeps being relevant over and over again. So uh, this is a little off topic, but I'm curious because I'm such a fan of the whole feeling of our tapestry. Is there a character in that entire series that is actually similar to you in real life? That's a two-part question. And second part of that question is, do you try to put a, a bit of actual, you know, Guy K into your characters, or do you try to separate yourself from these people? It, it's not a matter of trying or not trying. It doesn't happen. I don't do that. I don't put myself into the characters. But the caveat, Daniel, and there has to be one, is that they're all coming from within. Sure. So they can't help but be expressions of, something within. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was Goethe who said that uh, he that there's no action anyone could do that he can't imagine himself doing. It doesn't mean he do it. Right. But Goethe said he can't, he can always imagine it. And one of the one of the uh, elements of writing fiction with a large cast, because I don't write focused on a single person and their specific life books. I write with a fairly broad 
canvas. When you have a number of people coming into a book, part of the responsibility of the writer is to make each of them or as many of them vivid for the reader. One way or another, you have to imagine yourself into even the villains of a book. Sure, absolutely. And even the, for me, uh, marginal characters. In the newest one, in all the seas of the world, uh, a significant number of marginal characters get, I hope, full value for the reader in the arc of their story, even if it's not central to the main story of the book. That's important to me. Do you have any kind of uh, prerequisite for yourself when you wake up, oh, I've had my coffee, whatever, I'm going to, I have to write at least 500 pages today yeah, or something? I do. I think that this is, this is, again, it's just me, but I, when I'm mid book, when I'm actually writing as opposed to researching or revising after I have editor's notes, when I'm actually writing a book, then yes, it's get up, have the coffee, deal with whatever emails came in overnight from overseas usually, and then get to it. My satisfaction is if I can get done somewhere between 800 to 1,200 words in a writing day, I can get up and enjoy my life. Hmm. Uh, if I haven't, I cannot enjoy my life. And wait, do you, when you say, let's say, let's just round it and say a thousand words, right? Which is about what, four pages, yeah. I would say? Four or five pages. Uh, yeah. So do you, do you try to just say, I just want to achieve a thousand words? Or do you more specifically say, I want to try to achieve a thousand good words? Because yes, there is a difference. It's the good Okay. For sure. It's not just getting it out, it's, yeah. it's getting it out in quality. Workable words. And then you revise them toward the end of any session. Otherwise, you're back to the semicolons and seafood recipes. <laughs> <laughs> what was the biggest challenge uh, with the new book? I, this is a book that's very much about, and I started it before any current events, but it seems to have been overtaken by events. It's a book about exiles and being driven from home and people, characters, and protagonists and secondary characters who are dealing with the inward implications of being uprooted, not by choice, from, from where they feel rooted at home. And that's a challenge to write about because A, if you're doing it with multiple characters, you want to distinguish their individual stories while also showing what they have in common. That's always tricky, Daniel, where you want to individualize and universalize. There, there's a fine line. Fine line is the wrong phrase. There's a, a fusion process that yeah. is difficult to achieve. And that was one of the challenges of this book. Uh, this is a book, and I've done this in the last two or three novels, that tries to pay attention to the unrecorded lives of history. It's not my phrase, that's a, that's a, a, a good phrase that's been used. The, the lives that we don't have a record of, the way we have uh, bishops and queens and popes and generals. Uh, these are in many instances lives that would be unrecorded. Now, historians, as a, as a group, a terrific number of historians have done wonderful work unearthing these lives that might not have been known because there are techniques we can use. Well, what made you want to write about this in the first place? I've always, and I can't answer this, I'd need some eager, keen master to doctor student to dig into it. But I've always been interested in distance from home. Mm. And it's intriguing because I've never been forced out of my home. 
I made choices and I'm not even that far from where I was born. I'm not there, but I could be there by dinner time, as it were, if I wanted to be. I'm endlessly interested all my life in how the great events of a time, war somewhere, the death of an emperor, these are going to impact all of us. But we're still going to be impacted more, perhaps, if we're a farmer by the one hired hand breaking his leg just before the harvest. Mm -hmm. So the bringing it down to the personal level of individual lives while setting a story against a really large backdrop of war and conflict it's something I've always tried to do. You know how. Wait, well, it's interesting because because you're almost talking about the like the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand starting World War One versus the guy in the fields who breaks his leg. I mean, that, that's exactly kinda, right. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. Auden wrote a poem about a Bruegel painting, uh, the Musée de Beaux-Arts, about the begins about suffering. They were never wrong, and the painting shows. Icarus falling into the sea from his attempt to fly with his father Daedalus. And all you see of Icarus is his feet. He's already in the water. His feet are out of the water. And it's a large, magnificent canvas. Hmm. Everyone is going on with their life. Well, something colossal has happened. It's, uh, it, it's a huge impact on me. Those, both of those. Both of them had a big impact on me. The idea of scale, working on the personal scale and on the large political scale, is something I've tried very hard to do in this book, but I've tried hard to do it in every book. In doing that, do you try to challenge particular perspectives or belief systems with your books? Not so much as a gauntlet thrown down to readers beliefs. I'm not, I'm not uh, adversarial theater. I'm not doing, I'm not working that way. I'm trying to expand, if I could put it in those terms, rather than confront. I'm trying to expand people's possible understanding of history, mm. of themselves, if I've done something right, of the world they live in. This is one of the wonderful things about writing about the past, Daniel is that if you do it right, not only do you shed light on earlier events, but you could shed light on current events mm -hmm. at the same time. And I'm very do conscious you, of that. Do you think you'll ever revisit high fantasy, like, you know, Summer Tree and do another novel not based in a historical? I never know what the next book will be. Uh, <laughs> that's awesome. I know what the last ones are. <laughs> at my age, that's an achievement. <laughs> The, uh, the thing I'll say about this, and it's an important thing to say, is that if we're writing the same books in our 60s that we wrote in our 20s and 30s, something's wrong. Mm. Or we've been so insanely successful that we made a tactical decision to keep doing the same thing yeah. for the marketplace. Yeah. But if you aspire to doing something ambitious, serious with your work, then because I'm not the same person I was when I wrote Fionnabar, for example. Uh, yeah. And people say, what influenced you? What, and they mean, what books influenced you? And I always say, you're defining the term way too narrowly. You're influenced by your childhood, by your parents. Your friends, your environment. Your, yeah. By the death of your parents, by marriage, by becoming a parent, by your friendships, by the circumstances of the world around you, by a painting as opposed to a book. Your influences are so much wider than just what did you read that influenced you? And the question is so often framed that way. 
Well, you know, I, I actually I don't know actually what the rule is in Canada, but you know, in the United States, you can't become president of the United States until you're, I believe, it's thirty five or thirty seven. And there's a reason why you cannot be president until you're a certain age, because they want you to have experienced a certain amount of the world to understand, to have to have known loss, to have seen what the world is really about. I would never want a 20 year old running our country. They're, they're just too wet behind the ears, no matter what they've been through, you know. So I, I completely understand that. And as I, I'm 50 and I I now. I think I, I don't know that I'd ever want to read the stuff I wrote when I was 20. I want to read the stuff I'm writing now, though. There's a, there's a great quote that says, sometimes if there's a book you want to read, you have to write it yourself. Uh, and Ann Patchett said that. And it's something that inspires me to write because there is still a book I want to read and I, I want to write it. You know, and that's, that's, that's what I'm working on. That's a neat phrase. That's a neat phrase. I come at it the other way. I say we all write the books. We'd like to read if someone else wrote them. <laughs> yeah that we're all writing a book we would ideally like to enjoy. If somebody said, you should read Daniel Shirley's written this really interesting book, and mm. it speaks to something that I would like to have Actually, I'm going to quote you because in 2019, I'm going to read you this quote I wrote. I, I keep a little list on my notepad of some of my favorite quotes, and I have one of yours, and it's this. <clears throat> you said... How wonderful, as a reader myself, that feeling is when a book you read enters your own personal sense of self, when the books aren't just a distraction, a diversion, a beach read, an airplane read, but they become part of the map of how we deal with the world. And I think every serious writer I know is trying to write the books that they would enjoy reading if somebody else wrote them. And so because of that aspiration as a reader, because I want that to happen to me, I'm trying to give that degree of engagement for readers. Yeah. You're brilliant. However, that was <laughs> in 2019. He put it very well. <laughs> <laughs> Guy Gavry, okay, what makes a good story in your opinion? I'm going to be glib about this because it's come up a lot, Daniel. So my answer often is interesting things happening to interesting people told in a compelling way. I think that's, that's a good story. Yeah, there you go. Great soundbite. <laughs> uh, of all the different places that have inspired your books from Spain and Tuscany, et cetera, do you have a favorite? Yeah, I, as a place to be, uh, Provence has a corner of my heart. Uh, if I believed in reincarnation, I would probably believe that I was born somewhere down there at some point, uh, carrying water up and down the hill, which was not fun, but... Uh, <laughs> I love it there. We lived and worked there four times. Mm. And that should answer your question in a way. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you, do you, do you always try to travel to the place that your book is going to be about? Like it's I, after a period of time we did, uh, but the reality is we talk about, you know, as parents we talk about grounding our kids, you know, because they're out too late or something like that. And the reality is that they ground you in many different ways. They can ground you in the world and give you a sense of thinking forward because you're concerned for the world that they're going to grow up and inherit. Mm -hmm. But in another way, once they're in school, you are not picking up every 12 or 18 months and going away for half a year just because you'd like to live in Tuscany again because mm -hmm. you've got a kid who can't just be yanked out of their schooling <laughs> and their friendships. Uh, so the last books, for the most part, have been written here in Toronto. I think some of the travel to write impulse was insecurity at the beginning. I felt that I needed to isolate myself from people with, I used to put it, a right to make demands on my time. Hmm. Because I wasn't sure I could get books written. And I took myself away and isolated myself at the beginning. This is pre-internet. So it's literally away somewhere. Mm. New Zealand, Tuscany, so forth. Uh, and that worked for me. The other thing that works for me, Daniel, don't laugh when you're allowed to laugh, is guilt. Yeah. I would wake up in the morning. You would talk about a work method. I'd get up in the morning and it would be some beautiful sunrise in Tuscany between Siena and Florence, and I would say, 
how the hell can I justify being here if I don't get 1,500 words written today? Yeah. I have no I actually, option. I'm, I'm very similar. If I don't get a certain amount of things done, I have a problem even sitting down to watch TV that night. Like, I feel like I, I but I like that reward system because it does inspire me to work it's harder and to keep going. It's motivating. Yeah, it is. And then when I finally do get that reward, man, it feels great. You know, it, it really I had really a dear is. friend, I had a dear friend now deceased who, when we were going away, she says, I don't know how you do it. He said, if I were off in Tuscany for five or six months, he said, I would buy myself a motorbike and I would take it up and down all the hills of Tuscany and I would eat pasta and I would drink Campari and I would come home with absolutely nothing but. And that's part of what we were talking about before, which is the idiosyncrasy of process. For me, going away to a really beautiful place worked to drive me because I thought, how can I justify it? For him, he would say, of course I can justify it. It's beautiful when I'm here. Let's get on the bike. <laughs> Do you think that you will ever reach a point as an author where you have told all the stories you want to tell? Or would you rather go to your grave feeling like you still had things to share? It's unfortunate you wouldn't get to, don't get to tell those stories. Yes, I'm reminded of the uh, the Woody Allen's line about, I don't want to achieve immortality in my work. I want to achieve it by not dying. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure it's a choice for most of us. I think there is a degree of desire in me and in most creative people to keep working. I think that there might even be a feeling that, uh, what do I do if I stop working? It's why mm -hmm. so few artists and writers formally retire. You can get to a point where you fear repeating yourself. You fear, I suppose, I know writers who might fear diminishing the quality of their work. I'm not there yet. I'm not thinking in those terms. Good, good. <laughs> I know I look forward to more books. Uh, just real quickly, I'm just curious, how much time do you spend researching when you write a novel? Well, a lot. Short answer is a lot, because my building blocks are, are history. Do you do something in particular to celebrate when you finished a book? <laughs> There's always champagne. Uh, <laughs> I do do something. Uh, you're dragging a deep, dark confession out of me. <laughs> uh, when I wrote my very first novel, which was never published, I went to the south coast of Crete. I was 24 years old. I had my 24th birthday in the village when I got mm. there on my birthday. And uh, I spent that winter writing a book. And when I finished that novel, wrote it longhand, Tells you how wow. long ago it was. Wrote it wow. long, retyped it, retyped it. But I finished drafting and wrote the end on the roof of my hotel overlooking the sea on the south coast of Crete. It was a four dollar a night hotel. This wasn't luxury. <laughs> uh, I stood up at the desk and I screamed. I did a Tarzan primal cry. A long one. I just screamed it to the sea and the island and the world. That's and awesome. And every book after that, when I finish the book, the draft, when I finish the draft, hmm. my sons, when they were young, my wife would tell them, Dad's getting close to the ending. Don't be scared. <laughs> or they would look forward to it. That they were, it was like, if I didn't finish on a day when they thought I might, they were, where's the screen? You know, it's like they were waiting for it. <laughs> I think that's fantastic. I always mm. still do. What would be the title of your autobiography? Oh, my gosh. I think I gave it to you earlier. Hockey, football, and books. Okay. <laughs> my uh, real still... ambition in life was to play second base for the Yankees. You know, it's like I'm a writer at the fallback position. I haven't quite given up on it, but I'm getting close. 
now we know what your next book is about, though. A fantasy writer who magically goes back in time and becomes no, a baseball player. It's been done. People have done that. Uh, <clears throat> do you think that being a writer uh, has made you a better person? Yes, I do think that. Uh, that's an interesting question, Dan. I'm going to frame it in my personal terms by saying I think it made me a better person than would have happened if I'd gone on to do what I expected to do, which is become a lawyer. Because hmm. that was the make a living thing I did. When Remember we said at the beginning, my dad said, just get the law degree. You'll have mm-hmm. it if writing doesn't work out. Yeah. Now, no one in their right mind, especially a Canadian, expects to make a living writing fiction. It doesn't happen. And so I expected that I would practice law, uh, criminal law with my passion, my interest in the law. uh, And I would scramble to find time around the edges of a legal practice, ideally one day a family, to do some writing. That was my, if you'd asked me in my 20s, that would have been my wish expectation of life. And I think even then I was aware that the qualities that writing the sort of fiction we've been talking about for the last while, the qualities in me that that developed, required, were qualities I liked more than those that were components of being successful as a courtroom lawyer. So I think that in my very personal, very personal way, becoming a writer did make me a better person. As an author, I'm particularly curious, is there any particular book that you think everyone on the planet should read? I think that a book about China under Mao called Wild Swans by Yung Chang is fundamental. I think that's a deeply moving, stupendously important book. Hmm. Uh, I'm wildly in love with the fiction of Penelope Fitzgerald, English novelist. Uh, A.S. Bayat wrote that if you push me to an answer, I would say that Penelope Fitzgerald is the best novelist in the English language of the second half of the 20th century. Hmm. And I might not have to be pushed that hard because I think (laughs) she isn't how I would ever write. We were talking before about how we like to read books we'd have written. She's an example of the opposite. I would never write the way she does, but I would find delicious, endless pleasure in the sly, wry, witty, elliptical way she approaches her stories and characters. I think everyone should read her. But having said that, here's my caveat. I'm, I'm the god emperor of caveats, Daniel. Is that uh, no writers for everyone. I'm a cranky reader. I think we overpraise competence in today's world. I think they have a tendency, because of the hype culture and the need to rise above all the noise and static, the solution is to make more noise. And so you can't just say this is a good book. You have to say this is the most fabulous book I've read in yeah. two days. You know, yeah. it's, uh, This book is everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what we're in a culture that needs to say that. And so I'm cranky about that because I think we do overpraise. And I put it this way, competence gets equated with excellence. And quite honestly, excellence is rare. By definition, excellence is really rare. We've got a continuum. We're searching for excellence. We hunger for it. And we want to find something really excellent. But we don't find it by declaring something good to be excellent. We, we cheapen language when we do that. I agree completely. Yeah, I agree. Uh, This is kind of a fun question, but let's say it's 8 o'clock at night and you've had a cocktail and you're going to put some music on and dance around your office. What song would you put on? Oh, my gosh. Uh, 
the dance around my office part is uncharacteristic, but put some music on <laughs> would be uh, Joni Mitchell still. Joni Mitchell, we share a birthday. But, uh, <laughs> I will default to Dylan if it's not her. I will listen to uh, jazz at 8 o'clock at night on a spring night. I'm going to put some classical jazz on. Uh, that would be most likely the direction I'd go. I just put a friend on to Ella Fitzgerald singing the standards. Mm. Ella sings the Cole Porter songbook, the Harold Arlen songbook, the Gershwins. Good uh, stuff. And I made someone very, very happy by <laughs> steering them to listening to her glorious so, of course, because I recommended them to somebody, I've been listening to them for the last couple of days. <laughs> well, Guy, you can thank Jolene for this next question because she she wrote it for me and I've used it throughout the show. It's one of my favorite questions. If you could sit down for four hours in an old-timey pub with one person from all of human history, alive or dead, excluding your own family or any prophet like Jesus, Muhammad, or Buddha, who would you sit down with? What would you drink? And what would be the first question you'd ask them? I am so stereotypically for a writer locked into wanting to sit down with Shakespeare. I would sit down with Bill Shakespeare. It would be a pub where I could order a good Negroni, and he could have a pint of ale or mom's ear, whatever he wanted. Because this is, we're doing this, if we're doing this fantasy, it's a really good pub. Oh, yeah. For the bartender who knows what she's doing. Yeah. And so we've got drinks that are properly made. And I'm fussy about cocktails. Okay. Uh, I would be thrilled to sit down and talk to him about why everyone thinks Bacon wrote his place. <laughs> excellent now you mentioned scotch earlier uh do you have a favorite scotch my favorite scotch is springbank i could have a springbank anytime but uh my brother-in-law as it happens this week i'm very jealous of him is on his way to springbank distillery mm. spend a week or five days i think working for them this wow. the whiskey equivalent uh, like baseball camp for grown-ups, where you can pay a bunch of money to have has-been ball players hit ground balls to you at a summer camp or something like that. And uh, the distilleries now allow people to pay them a legitimate sum of money to dig peat or do whatever you do at the <laughs> distillery. So that you can drink in the evenings to rest How your weary fun. bones. He's on his way there. And I'm How waiting fun. for his report back. That's awesome. That's really awesome. Uh, if let's just say there is a God and you go to heaven and you see God for the first time and he looks at you after you die. What's the first thing you want to hear him say? Nice work. Love it. Do you are you hopeful as a human being for the, our species and the planet? I just read a quote. Oh, with Arthur Miller, I saw a documentary about Arthur Miller, and he was asked if he's an optimist or a pessimist, and he said, uh, "I use pessimism to defend against my optimism." <laughs> I really loved that. I've been thinking about it since I heard that because I think being deeply gloomy, deeply cynical, uh, disasters coming is in its own way irresponsible, but it's also a reflection of how we feel helpless. Mm -hmm. So many people feel helpless and some people's response to feeling helpless is, you know, do something, anything. And sometimes we make mistakes when we spring into action. We, we end up with the, the unintended consequences problem of, of springing into action without thinking it through. I am generally a glass half full person. Mm. I'm generally not 
deeply gloomy in terms of life. Um, I try to create with that in mind. I try to reflect that the world has grief, loss, pain, mm. but it also has redemptive people. It has love. It has kindness. Yeah. I, I think kindness is undervalued. In oh, I agree completely. Yeah. In, in literature, we don't, even liking is undervalued. There's a, there's a we, we go for the bigger emotions. We go for love and hate, but kindness, liking, friendship. Well, is, is kindness, because one of my questions is what, what quality do you most admire about human beings? Would that be kindness for you? One of them, that would be one of them, but I am probably too, by inclination, austere. I hugely admire intelligence. Mm. I, I seek it out. Somebody once said, a, a good friend of mine, he's so arrogant. And I said, yes, but he's done things that let me forgive him for being arrogant. Mm. Somebody who's arrogant without having earned it, I'll have a big problem with. So I just want to touch again on legacy. Uh, you know, most people try to leave something behind. And, you know, you as an author have done, uh, you know, 15 books, you, you have children, you've, you've left your own series of legacy. But then there's also people who spend their lives, you know, not that they're any less important. We talked about them earlier, a guy who works in a steel mill his whole life and no one knows who he is. What do you think about legacy and how important is it for a human to leave something behind? And just because you're famous doesn't necessarily mean your legacy matters any more than a steel worker versus a novelist. So I'm curious what you think about that. It's a really interesting, long discussion question. That's, it's a <laughs> terrible thing to do at the end of an interview because we can go for a long time on that. Uh, I've written about this. Uh, my novel, The Last Light of the Sun, is very much about people thinking about different ways of what they will leave behind. And uh, artists, major political figures, have a different angle, as you say, on what a legacy could be. Shakespeare's legacy is in his, is in his books. Uh, most of us, the idea of a legacy is existing in the memory of people who knew us. And that is almost definitionally a couple of generations max, that it's, it's the nature of existence is that two generations of people might remember mother, grandmother, and what she was like. Yeah. By the time you're down one more generation, that legacy is rippling through, through people in unknown ways. Somebody may be the legacy of their great-grandmother because their mother remembers her and acts in certain ways because of her. Somebody may carry a name and not even know why that's their name. Mm -hmm. So I think legacy for most of us is actually a short-term application of the word, and that's the nature of things. Yeah. And it's interesting because that, if that's the case, and it is short-term, then you get into a very wonderful philosophical discussion for another time about the meaning of life for the individual and how you, how you live your life and what really matters. And the, you know, does, does the phone bill being late really matter? No, it doesn't. You know, do the connections to human beings matter? Yeah, of course they do. You know? So, um, well, before we wrap up guy, I have to tell you, uh, at the end of every episode, I do this little game called 299 questions with Moonbird. And I have, gathered from friends, family, and the internet, 299 philosophical and life questions meant to be quick one-offs. You pick your two favorite numbers, and I'm going to read you those two questions. So between one and 299, what are your two numbers? One to 299, three and nine. Three and nine. Okay, number three, what smell do you love? 
what smells do I love? <laughs> Chocolate. All right, number nine. Uh, we kind of covered this, but if you were going to have another profession other than your own, what would you attempt? I would have been a second baseman for the New York Yankees with a long yeah. and illustrious career. Borderline Hall of Fame. I'm not arrogant enough to assume I would have got a locked in Hall of Fame. <laughs> Guy, I can't thank you enough for being here. It's been really wonderful to talk with you, and I wish you the best of luck with the new book, All the Seas of the World, coming out May 17th. If you're hearing this or watching this show afterwards, Go to the bookstores and get it now. Thank you, Daniel. I enjoyed it. I want to thank my guest, Guy Gavriel Kay. You can check out his novels wherever books are sold or at his website, brightweavings.com. And while you're on the web, there's three things you can do right now that are awesome. Number one, head on over to patreon.com forward slash moonbird and please show your support for the show. The second thing is that if you want even more moonbird in your life, and hey, who wouldn't? Head on over to memoriesofamoonbird.com or visit me on social media at memoriesofamoonbird. And the third thing, even though it's annoying and you've heard it 50 million times before, hit that like and subscribe button. Thank you so much for watching or listening or both. And remember, stay safe. <laughs>